My name is Pastor Nate, and I just want to welcome you here today. I do pray this, as you come here, that this would be a church for those who are weary and need rest. That this would be a church for those who are mourning and long for comfort. That we would be a church for all those who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. That we would be a church to all who fail and desire strength. I pray that for all who sin and need a Savior, that this church would open up wider doors and welcome you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the ally of enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, and the friend of sinners. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us on the cross. I thank you for this reminder that we've had today of, of your blood and your body broken for us. Lord, I just pray that we would continue to worship you. As we hear your word preached, as your word is preached, may we continue to worship you. Lord, calm our hearts, calm your mind, our minds, calm my heart, calm my mind as we come to continue to worship you. And Lord, there's no possible way I can do this on my own, so will you not give me what is needed to preach this sermon, Lord? But use this sermon for your glory, for the salvation of the lost, and the joy of your people. And amen. Last week, last week we took a look at Jesus being the light of the world. And, we, and that how he is the light of the world, we bear witness of him in this dark world. We live in a dark world. It's a dark day, but it's a dark world. But this is our joy. As people who have experienced the lights of the world, Jesus is our lights. We bear witness of that light and we point people to that. For those who are younger, though, as we continue on in this passage in John 8, for those who have, are younger and maybe have older siblings, and I know that there's siblings in this room, so be very careful. <laughs> have you ever been in a situation where your older sibling is sitting on you and tickling you? And no matter what you can do, you can't get free of it, right? No matter what is happening, that person who is bigger than you, brother or sister, is sitting on you. Maybe they have your arms above you and they're tickling your armpits like this. You feel like you're going to go pee in your pants. All of these things, you're screaming and you're laughing all at the same time. Tears are flowing and the torment would just not end. My daughter's smirking at me because I do that to her. But you see, I've never experienced it myself because I am the eldest. Amen, right? I was the tormentor, not the tormentee. But we've all been in a situation where we feel like no matter how much we struggle, things just don't seem to get any looser. Nothing seems to get any better. Even when I would be tickling my sisters, I have three younger sisters, if I was sitting on them tickling them, they would be screaming for mom or dad to come rescue them, and they would be the bigger ones. Right? They would be the ones that come and to rescue my sisters from my torment. You know, for all of us, though, no matter how much you struggle, you just could not get free. You felt traps. You were stuck in a loop of struggling to be free. There is nothing you can do. But here in John 8, we see that you and I, outside of Christ, live a life that is struggling to be free, and Jesus is the solution for us for you and for me today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John, and we'll be reading from John chapter 8, verses 31, all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 59. 
The word of the Lord says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, as we saw in verse 30, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and, now, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Keep in mind who Jesus is talking to here. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father that your father did. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and did not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you did not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is, sorry, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear me, is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Good question. If Jesus answered, and Jesus answered in verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his words. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself 
and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. In verses 31 to 36, we're reminded that we need to live like you're free. Jesus addresses in verse 31 the ones who said they believed in verse 30. But as we see, clearly there's not a saving faith here. Because true belief is to abide in Jesus. And what does it mean to abide? To abide is one of the main Christian virtues of, Christian, of the Christian life. It means to remain. It means to stay. Other translations use the word hold or to continue. There's an ongoing, but it's, there's a conditional statement that Jesus comes through here. He says, if you are my disciples, you will, will abide. You will continue to be in my word. You will continue to walk in this direction. It doesn't mean perfection. Because we all know that we're not. And if anyone ever claims to be perfect, you're a liar. Even if your mom told you that. But what does this look like to continue? What does it look like to abide in Jesus Christ? The verse shows us how important the steady perseverance of walking in Christ is. Essentially, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to persevere in the faith as one would say. The beginning of a Christian life is great. When you first recognize that you are a sinner and that your only right in this world is that you would be condemned to hell for eternity, the gnashing of teeth, the fire and brimstone sort of thing, that is your due right, your only right. And that God saved you by absorbing the, the punishment that you were supposed to take. When you realize what God has done for you, that Christ died for your sins and rose again, when you realize that, when you first get it, it is like you're on a high, like you've never believed it. Isn't it? You feel great. You're on cloud nine. You're, you're telling everyone about Jesus. You're like, hey, have you heard about this guy named Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. I find it so encouraging when people, when God grabs hold of someone's life and transforms them. But the beginning is always a good time. People are cheering you on. You're on that bit of a bit of a high. Everything is so new and fresh. But then the new feelings fade. The world and all its distractions build. The devil pulls harder. Your heart's weaknesses begin to show it's then that you begin to think, wow, this isn't easy at all. What that pastor was saying when I was making this confession, oh, it's coming true. It's then that you begin to see Jesus' words so clear. It's not the beginning, but continuing in your profession. That is the test of true Grace. One pastor put it this way as he was using the illustration of metal. Time and wear test metals, he says, and prove whether they are solid or plated. Time and wear in like manner are the surest tests of a man's religion. Where there is spiritual life, there will be continuance and steady perseverance. It is a man who goes on as well as the beginning, that is the disciple indeed. To abide in the word of Jesus' words is to embrace his teaching, is to continue to hold on to it. And there are going to be days when you're holding on to it, that truth with white knuckles. 
but you're holding on. It is the anchor by which keeps us in Christ. Those who abide in Jesus' word live in a world as the word of Jesus calls us to live. So what happens when we abide in his word? In verse 32 it says, And you will know the truth. We can go back to chapter 5 to see what this is looking like. To abide in Jesus' word is to hear the voice of the Son of God and live. To, to abide in Jesus is to experience his words as, Jesus, as spirit and life. To abide in Jesus' word is to believe God who sent Jesus. To abide in Jesus is to go to Jesus, the bread of life, and never hunger again. It is to go to Jesus, the source of living water, and never thirst again. It is to experience the satisfaction of hunger and thirst through faith in what Jesus has said. To follow him through the darkness because he is the light of the world. To abide in Jesus is to know that he is to be identified as I am. To know that he is the son of man who will be lifted up. If you abide in Jesus, you will know, as John 1, 3 says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. The word of Jesus created. And because he created, he gets to define how we are to live in this world which he created. In verse 33, up to Jesus' statement that they are slaves, the Jews reply with this whole, but we are not slaves. What are you talking about, Jesus? You're crazy. In fact, we've never been slaves. And if you've been in church for any amount of time and read through the Old Testament, you'll quickly realize that they have been. There seems to be a blind sense here, but Jesus isn't even, Jesus isn't even addressing this. He's talking about their spiritual state, but even in, in their physical state, did they forget their slavery in Egypt, which God called them out of? We call that the exodus into the promised land? Or the time of the judges, which was just a downward spiral like a toilet bowl? Or maybe even their present <laughs> circumstances of Rome? They thought they, they weren't in any spiritual danger because they were descendants of Abraham. And Jesus, is, Jesus says to them, that is not the case. Your pedigree, where you come from, does not dictate your saving faith. He says in verse 34, everyone who practices sin will, shows who their father is. And what does it mean to practice? When you think of that word practice, what do you think of? I think of when I want to get better at something, I have to practice at it, right? If I wanted to get better at basketball, I had to play basketball more. If I want to get better at preaching, I have to practice preaching more. If I want to get better at anything, I want to get better more. And Jesus comes and says, everyone who practices sin. It's an ongoing sin. It's to continue in something. It's seeking to get better at something. And sin enslaves because every act of disobedience to God creates an atmosphere of alienation and a trend that continues in disobedience. And these were people that were practicing in their sin. It became habitual. When I'm practicing at getting ready, if I want to get better at basketball, and I think the best time to practice is at 5 a.m., which is not. That's just an ungodly time of the day. I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. every time. 
And it becomes a habit, and I wake up at 5 a.m., and I practice hard at it. And Jesus says they're doing the same thing. John Owen famously said this, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. These were people that were not practicing the killing of their sin. The Holy Spirit empowers Christians to put sin to death and grow in righteousness throughout their lives. To continue to practice sin is to be a slave to sin, not a murderer of sin. The slave, as he says in verse 35, has no security. I remember watching that movie, 10 Years a Slave, that came out a few years ago, and my heart broke. I don't tend to watch those types of movies because the depravity of humanity just kind of tears at my heart. But I'm sitting there watching it, and you see this implication that slaves did not have any family obligation to them. In fact, they didn't have family. They were torn away and sold. And here, the same sort of idea that comes. A slave can't claim any family ties. There is no obligation to him. The son of a family has a permanent status as part of the family. But that freedom doesn't come through ancestry as Jesus continues to push this analogy out. The son of God is the one who confers and gives the privilege of being in the family. So Jesus says, you're rejecting me, and by rejecting me, you are not part of the family. The hope for real freedom doesn't lie in where you come from. It comes through what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Slave to sins are not free to love God or their neighbor, and they are not free to speak the truth or to know the truth. They are enslaved to sin, and this is where the gospel comes in. Christ died for our sins and rose again. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that you have been set free from slavery of sin. You are now free, and Jesus calls us to live like you are free. Why do some of us live like we're still enslaved? When you are free indeed. In John 30, in 36, he says those wonderful words. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's emphatic. It's for sure. There's a hope. Not like if the Maple Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup hope. Because you'll keep hoping. (laughs) This is a sure hope that our victorious captain states, if I set you free, you're free indeed. In Canada... I love this country. I've said this before. I think it's the best country. We are free. We live in a free country. We live in a democratic country. It's an amazing thing and a blessing. We are free from foreign dominion. We have the charters of rights and freedoms. We have freedom of press and civil and religious liberties and certain degrees. And how many people would fight to continue in these freedoms? How many people have fought to keep these freedoms? Countless. Actually, it's not countless. You can count them. (laughs) You have so much freedom in this country. But here's the kicker. We can boast all day about these things, about how great our country is, about how free our country is. But much of our fellow country folk who are are still slaves, even with all of these freedoms, they are completely ignorant of the highest freedom, 
freedom from sin. And those who the Son sets free are perfectly free. Not half free, not kind of free, free. And what type of freedom are we talking about? We're talking about the freedom that Christ has given. What is it made up of? If you are in Christ, it means that Christ has set you free. You are freed from the guilt and the consequences of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no more condemnation. You have been justified, pardoned, forgiven, and you can look forward boldly to the day of judgment, not with fear, but with amazing sense of God's grace and mercy. You can cry out, who's going to charge me? Who's going to condemn me? In our discipleship group this past week, we were spending time in Hebrews 4. And I love Hebrews 4.16. It's one of my favorites. It says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's an amazing thing. In Christ, you are freed from the power of sin by the grace of God and sin doesn't have control over you. You have been renewed. You've been converted. You are being sanctified. So mortify that sin. Go all axe murderer on that sin. Do whatever you got to do to kill that sin because you are free in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he empowers you to fight it. I don't do it on my own. I think half of the time we fail so much because we keep forgetting that I don't have the strength to do it on my own. And that is a heart issue at the end of the day. When I sin, it's essentially saying I don't trust. I don't trust God to be good enough. I don't trust him to be pleasurable enough. I don't trust him to fill in the blank. But God has set me free. In Christ, there is liberty, which is ours forever. Death cannot stop it. The grave can't hold our bodies for more than a little season. Those whom Christ makes free are free to all eternity. And this is the truth that will set you free. Why? Because if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Do you get the point? Live like you're free. Because you are, if you are in Christ. I don't want to leave this place until you know this freedom. Without it, all of other freedoms are worthless privileges. Free speech, we have a charter of rights and freedoms, free press, civil, all those liberties. All these can't make your deathbed comfortable. None of them. I have stood beside enough deathbeds to see those who are resting in the grace of God and those who aren't. Nothing can do that but the freedom which Christ alone gives. He gives it freely to all who seek it humbly. Then let us never rest till it is our own because it is only in Christ that you can have rest. Jesus sets people free as they abide in him. And in verses 37 to 47, Jesus begins to address the crowd and remind her that the crowd is full of religious leaders. And he says, you're like your father. In verses 37 to 47. Last week, when Steph and I tend to go for walks after church on Sunday, and she doesn't know I'm going to say this, but it doesn't matter because it's too late. And uh, 
I remember uh, she was saying, she kind of smirked as we were on our walk, and she said, uh, you really remind me of your dad. And I'm like, what do you mean? I already know that, but what do you mean? It's like in how your mannerisms, how you move your hands, because I'm doing this all the time, how I talk, my tones, my inflections, you're just like your dad. It took me a long time to accept that. It's for better or for worse, really. Isn't it hard as a parent when you start disciplining your children for the very characters that they see in you? If that's not a humbling thing, I don't know what is. But this is the reality. We often act like our parents, for better or for worse. If you are free, you will seek to live like your father, Jesus says. You will seek to imitate And here Jesus argues that the physical descendants of Abraham have Satan as their spiritual father. He comes into a church and tells the church, you're of the devil. Because their actions show their heart and their heart shows who their father is. If you were Abraham's children, he says in verse 39, you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He believed, he obeyed, and he worshipped. Did he do all of them perfectly? No. But as we're reminded in Hebrews again, by faith. They forgot that God's choice of their father Abraham was never meant to carry salvation to the children unless they walked in the footsteps of their father. If the crowd were children of Abraham, Jesus says, they would have accepted Jesus' words as true and believed. Abraham didn't try to kill the messengers of God. He accepted them. He was hospitable towards them. He believed them. And here Jesus comes to them and says the truth, and all the crowd wants to do is to murder him. Where you come from is not proof that you are saved. And we need something more than this. We must be joined to Christ himself by a living faith. We must abide in him. We must be set free by him. We need to have the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Knowing doctrine and going to church are great and amazing things, but they're not the things that save you. A saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ is what saves you. As they continue on in 42, they begin to kind of poke more fun at him as they said we're not born of sexual morality i thought a way of looking at this is that you know jesus is born of the virgin birth conception and now the if if jesus isn't god so this is for them if jesus isn't god well there's no way he could be born of the virgin birth so how do we explain this sexual immorality that's the answer to everything as we begin to try to discredit jesus more and more But their marks of their hearts are beginning to show. And like their father, they lie and seek to kill. There was no love of Jesus within them. So what are the marks of one who is like their heavenly father? No person is really a child of God who doesn't love Jesus Christ. I was in John 14 this morning as I did some personal devotional time. And Jesus clearly says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Why? Because it shows who your father is. And for this crowd, their actions were showing that they were of their father, the devil. And Jesus says, like father, like son. 
In verse 45, Jesus talks about the truth. He says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. We live in this world that says truth is relevant, and this isn't anything new. Jesus was struggling with the same thing. He was speaking truth, and people weren't believing it. But Jesus comes and says that because the crowd doesn't know the truth, they therefore can believe. They were living in a world of lies and distortion and falsehoods. In Titus 1.15, it says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. Unbelief and sin produce cynicism and skepticism. So Jesus comes in verse 46 and says, Which one of you is going to convict me of sin? Can any of you, show of hands, say what Jesus says? Prove to me that I've sinned. I'm not a sinner. Prove, uh, prove to me. Does anyone have the gall to say, stand up in a crowd and do what Jesus claims? Only Jesus can. Jesus is the only one who can say, prove that I am a sinner because he is sinless. It's impossible for you and I to say that, but Jesus says it. Our flaws would show up faster than anyone. If I stood up here and say, I am sinless. Yeah, see, someone's already laughing. Someone's going to get up here and say, that's not true, you're a liar. But Jesus says, prove it. Prove it. And this is a hostile crowd. This is a hostile crowd that would have jumped at any opportunity whatsoever to prove that Jesus was, in fact, a sinner, but they can't. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus says, well, how do you believe the truth in 47? You need a heart transplant. Outside of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in your life, in my life, you have a heart of stone that is unable to believe. You need a heart transplant where God takes your heart of stone, he puts a heart of flesh in there that enables you to believe that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior. But where are you living today? Have you been set free? Or are you still living enslaved? Your life, your desires, your attitude, your actions, your words ultimately show the states of your heart. They show whose you are. That points to who your father is. Are you living as one who has been set free or one who is free indeed? And Jesus says in verse 48 to 59 these wonderful words, before Abraham was, I am. He is the one who can set you free from the chains of sin because he is the only one who is capable of it. When Jesus comes and he says those words, he is proclaiming something that goes all the way back to the burning bush when Moses was, in, was, was uh, suddenly shocked to see a bush that was burning but not burning all at the same time and a voice coming from it. Who simply said, I am. In 48... The, Jew, the, the Jews answered him, Are you not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Essentially, they're saying you're a heretic and you're crazy. Samaritans were very close to Judaism, but they began to falter and they held to some very heretical things, improper teachings. And a demon is another way of just saying, You're legitimately nuts. 
They lose their temper. They're resorting to personal abuse. They call names. These are all common signs of someone who's been defeated, right? You've got to love it. When you're in a debate with someone and they're not attacking the issue and they just begin to attack you, that means you've won already. But here they do the same thing. These are the weapons. These are the weapons of the devil. If our Savior went through much of the same, we shouldn't be surprised when we do ourselves. Think of it. When I go and I declare the good news of Jesus Christ, I've seen this on, uh, I've been part of street preaching in the past. I haven't done it myself. I've witnessed it because I'm too chicken. And you see the reaction of the people who are listening. Either they become hostile or they become soft. If they're hostile, they'll resort to all sorts of things. And this is what happens to Jesus as he continues on, as he says these amazing words, as he counters them in 49, he says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. In verse 51, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And I hope you can see the encouragement within these words. We're not talking about physical death because we all die. Unless Jesus comes back. But in theory, we all die. And the Christian will never, ever feel the sting of death. For you and I who are in Christ, we don't fear death with fear and trembling. We fear it as a next chapter of spending eternity with the one who saved us. It doesn't mean we're not scared, but there is no sting of death. Our flesh may fail. Our bones may be full of pain. As has been told many times over the last few weeks to me, getting old sucks. Their words, not mine. But think about that. Our bones and our flesh are going to fail. They're going to be full of pain. But the bitter feeling of the weight of sin, the unpardoned sin, will not crush us. The worst part of death is standing before a holy God with no advocate. In Christ, we are victorious. We have been set free. That is my hope. I'm I'm still young. I got knee problems now, and I just can't wait to get to the... I'm young and I have knee problems. In Corinthians 15, 57, the Apostle Paul says, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the outcome of that victory, he continues on in verse 58 of that same chapter. Therefore, my beloved brothers, what does he say? Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And the Jews understood completely what Jesus is saying here. They understood that, what Jesus was implying that he was claiming to be better than Abraham, greater than Abraham, because Abraham died, even greater prophets had died, and Jesus is saying, you will not. 
2,000 years after Abraham's death, and Jesus is saying these words. And Abraham, 2,000 years ago, looked forward in hope to this very day, as Jesus points out in 56. Abraham looked back with hope, or sorry, looked forward in hope. Yet you are not. There is only one way to being saved. And from the Old Testament all the way to now, we look at the same Jesus who alone can save. In the Old Testament, they waited in anticipation. We have that Savior now. There was always only one hope. As Jesus declares himself to be pre-existing, in verse 58, Jesus again says, that he was the one who appeared in the burning bush, that identified himself as I am who I am. See, then the Jews knew exactly what was going to happen because we see them beginning to pick up stones ready to, 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 to stone Jesus in 59 because they thought that he was committing blasphemy. But Jesus goes and he hides himself and he leaves the temple. All around you, on a side note, all around you, you will encounter someone saying that Jesus never said he was God. I bring to you Exhibit A. Jesus clearly says he's God. And people might debate you on that. Then I will point to Exhibit B. Look at what the Jews did. They were trying to stone him because of his blasphemy. You're not God. Here Jesus says, I am. And the response of the crowd was to stone him for blasphemy. Those who claim that Jesus never identified himself as God have either not heard right or they are openly contradicting what John says here in verse 58. So, why do they want to stone him? Because he is God and he came to say the truth. But why couldn't they stone him? His time had not yet come. If you ever doubt that God is sovereign and in control over everything, just read through John. How many times did they try to kill him? And it wasn't until it was his time that he goes to the cross. These words are deep and show us so much about our God, our Lord, and our Savior. They, they show us how far and deep and high of a great foundation of our faith we are invited to rest on that foundation. And Jesus invites the sinner to come with all who are broken to believe in him for pardon of our sins and peace. Jesus is the one who is the I am before Abraham. He is the one who Abraham looked for with hope. He is very God. And because of that, he is able to save to the outermost. All who come to him. Not one person who comes to Jesus, regardless of the long laundry list of sins that you have, are unable to be saved by my God. So as Hebrews says, let us come with confidence. Let us continue leaning on him without fear. Jesus is the true God and our eternal life is secure. So what do we do with all of this? In Christ alone, we no longer are struggling to be free from sin, but now we're free to struggle against sin. And I have to give credit where credit is due because I stole that from Dave Frio. 
In Christ alone, we no longer are struggling to be free from sin, but now are free to struggle against sin. In Christ, we are no longer slaves, but the great I am, the one who has be, ha, was before Abraham has set us free. Jesus frees people. He frees them by telling them the truth in which the free must abide. If we abide in the words of Jesus, the story Jesus is telling with himself as God, liberator, provider, shepherd, light, bread, prophet, king, and I am. That is what sets us free. In our own personal story, God is redoing the history of redemption. He has liberated us from slavery to sin and is sustaining us with the fulfillments of manna from heaven, water from the rock, and a pillar of fire, as we see in Exodus. God will bring us to that happy place, that happy lands, that eternity with him. And we must abide in Christ and in his word. There's no better story, there's no better ending, there's no better Savior, and there's no better way to live. Abide in Christ. And to abide in Christ, we must abide in his word. We must read it, we must memorize it, we must share it, we must meditate on it. Because in Christ alone, we no longer are struggling struggling to be free from sin, but now are free to struggle against sin. But now we get to go and tell other people about it. If you have been set free, that means there's people in your life who have not been set free. And the only way that they will be set free is by the truth of what Jesus proclaims. Let us go out and let us do this. We must preach, we must pray, we must plant, and we must water, but also resting in the fact that it is God who gives the growth. In Christ alone, we no longer are struggling to be free from sin, but are now free to struggle against sin. And now we get to go and tell other people about how they too can be free. Let us continue to worship our awesome God together. Father God, I thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us. I thank you that you have set us free and that we are free indeed. Lord, I pray from my own heart that I would live in such a way that marks me as free. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would go from this place living as free people, declaring the hope of the nations to this dark world. And Lord, we do pray for those people in our lives that don't know you. I pray that, they, that you would break their chains, that you would give them a heart of flesh that enables them to believe, and that we, that myself and us, that we would have the boldness to go tell them about this truth. Amen.